0: Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professoressa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle there is at Pod. I'm thrilled to announce that Sacred and Profane Love is now a member of Lyceum. Lyceum is a new app whose hand curation cuts through the noise of a million podcasts to help people find great educational shows and have great conversations about them. So if you are a faithful listener, please download the app at lyceum.fm and then check out the Sacred and Profane Love discussion room to hang out with me and other listeners. In episode 24, our final episode of this season, titled Reading the Plague During a Plague, I speak with philosopher and poet Troy Jollimore of Cal State Chico about Albert Camus' very relevant novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 24 of Sacred and Profane Love, and I'm ridiculously happy because this evening I am joined once again by Troy Jalamore. Troy is a regular on the podcast. He is a poet, a, an award-winning poet, a literary critic, a philosopher at Cal State Chico, uh, and just one of the most fascinating people to have a conversation with. So welcome back to the podcast, Troy.
1: It's so great to be here, and you're too nice, but thank you.
0: No, I'm really not too nice. I could have heaped a lot more praise, but so I'll just – I'll stop there. Um, so, Troy, how's your quarantine been?
1: Uh, in some ways, I think like a lot of people's, um, and in some ways, um, I'm lucky – I know some people are having a much harder time, uh, in part because we have a garden and, and a yard here. So compared to you know people that are cooped up in small apartments and so on, uh, we are able to get out and we can walk around. And uh, at least in that way, you know, I think I'd be going crazy if I didn't have some outdoor space right now. So uh, that said, the whole online teaching thing has been crazy. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, Am
0: I crazy? Do you mean ridiculously uh, terrible? Uh,
1: I I don't know what it is. I don't even know if I can label it. Uh, It's just different. It's not really teaching and it's a different thing. And some parts of it seem to go okay. And some parts I I just, it doesn't feel like teaching to me. Uh, So, and I'm having to learn to do a lot of things I just didn't know how to do before. So as I'm sure a lot of people are right now.
0: Are you doing synchronous teaching?
1: I've been doing some, yeah. Uh, What I've done with, uh, you know, I had a couple classes that were online anyway, so I actually have some experience with it. But I haven't generally done them uh, synchronously in the past. But the ones that were in person, I I split it up between one synchronous session a week and one uh, pre-recorded something or other a week, um, which seemed to work okay. So uh, the hardest thing I find is uh, with the synchronous sessions is getting the kids to participate. They they just uh, they tend to sit there and kind of listen, but getting them to actually take part in an active discussion. It's very difficult.
0: I just went completely asynchronous.
1: I don't blame you. You know, it's, it's, I'm not sure synchronous is worth the trouble, honestly.
0: Yeah, I mean, talking to my students, um, they were were really glad that I did the asynchronous thing Mm -hmm. um, in part because they were having a really hard time keeping like a schedule And, but on my end, I just couldn't do it. I have had, I've been homeschooling since March. Right. Right. I've been homeschooling five kids with just an insane toddler running around in the background. (laughs) Uh, Just, you know, like an enfant terrible. And it's been, it's just been nuts. And I just told my students, there's no way that I'm going to regularly show up at the appointed hour. I basically... So the time that I had to work for the past three months has been from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. or whenever I just pass out, which is normally around 2 (laughs) a.m. So uh, I just think at that point, everything shuts down. and. Uh, Yeah, so I would just record lectures or make PowerPoints. Sometimes I would do both. And I would just kind of hope for the best. You know, like, did anyone understand Sidgwick? I don't know. Hard to say. So I I mean, I have to ask, Mm -hmm. what's it like teaching the plague during a plague?
1: It was very interesting, I have to say. Um, So it's a course that I team teach with uh, my wife, Heather Altfeld. It used to be called Virtue. Uh, We changed – well, we didn't change it. It We were asked to change the name this year from Virtue to Justice. Uh, the administrators thinking, I guess that was somehow more attractive to students or something like that. So it's Did not- they
0: not realize that justice is a virtue?
1: I, I know, I know. All they've done is really narrowed it down to one and excluded a lot of other good virtues. So I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of odd. Uh, we ended up doing a lot of the same material anyway, and we always changed some anyway. So. This particular change, we always do at least one novel. Um, in the past, we've mostly done uh, Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut, which is really quite wonderful and great about loyalty and so on. And we always did a lot on loyalty. But we did less on loyalty this time, and so we needed a different novel. And in whatever way it happened, uh, again, obviously knowing nothing about what was going to happen, we thought The Plague would be a good one. Uh, and it was. Why?
0: Why did you think the plague would be? Because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. If I were teaching a class called Virtue, mm-hmm. I think Camus is like basically the last person I would pick. So I'm really curious
1: oh, wow.
0: to hear. And I love Camus, but <laughs> okay. it's not obvious. It's not It's not an obvious choice. So can you explain that?
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe this will be something we talk about as we go along. Uh I am. I always have a different impression every time I read the book, and so this was probably my fourth time reading it. I guess to prepare for this class, and I always come away with a different sense of what it was Kumu was trying to say, and I guess that's in part because it is a novel. It's not uh, a monograph. It's not an essay. Uh, it's more in the realm of the Platonic dialogue or something. Where now, of course, with a lot of Plato's dialogues, you read it and you pretty much know. You know, you feel like you know what he was trying to say, but with some. There's multiple characters expressing different views, and it's not clear who speaks for Plato or whatever. So, of course, when you have a novel, uh, you have kind of the same thing. And whatever's going on in the plague, and I find it somewhat mysterious still, after having been through it a few times, it seems clear to me. I don't know if I want to say it seems clear. I strongly suspect that uh, Camus is, is playing with a number of different competing ideas and sort of finding himself torn between them. And one of the reasons for writing it as a novel as opposed to Uh, again, that's just a monograph or something, is that then he can explore the different ideas and feel the tensions and the inconsistencies and incompatibilities, etc., without having to take a side at the end, without having to say, you know, this is my view of virtue or something like that.
0: Mm
1: So I I think certainly there are are things he clearly would oppose and there's things he clearly stands for in some way. But what really interested me this time through, I think, was uh, maybe more than any of that, was the places in which he seemed to be torn, like I said, in in different directions, Uh, between, for instance, an optimistic view of, of humanity and a pessimistic view of humanity, something like that.
0: Were your students especially into it? Some of them
1: were. And, you know, again, it was hard to tell because by the time we got to it, it was the second half of the semester, so we weren't seeing them personally anymore. We were having Zoom sessions and recorded lectures, and many of them showed up for the Zoom sessions, but not all did. And many of those that did were just quiet. So it was hard to tell, you know, on the whole. It was hard to gauge the temperature of the classroom in the way that you can when you're in the classroom. Uh, but we, we raised it and asked them and got some feedback. And some on their own as well said that they thought it was, I don't know if they use the word useful exactly. Uh, I think helpful, one person said at least. You no, know, it's helpful to read this. Uh, while we were going through some version of it ourselves um, in a number of ways. And and I I think this student in particular talked about the aspects of Camus' description that that she found very accurate in terms of what we've been going through, in terms of things like the isolation and solitude, uh, which is a major presence in the book. And of course, one of the big differences in a sense between the novel and the real world situation is that in the real world, it's kind of happening everywhere in the novel. It happens in one city and in one small city and that city then gets shut off from everything else. But of course, many people still feel like that's what's happened to them. They're shut off from everything and they have to endure for some or, or experience this kind of isolation and solitude that maybe they haven't before and they're not used to. Uh, And, I, I won't speak for you, but for me, I'm I'm into isolation and solitude. I like it. So that hasn't, for the most part, been a trial for me. Uh, although there's certainly times when there's, you know, I wish I could go somewhere, leave Chico, whatever, and travel a little and so on. But I think that for some of our students, and again, this is a generalization. I'm sure it's not true for all, but I think for a lot of them, they're very social and they're very used to being in touch with people a lot. And isolation and solitude is not something they've Experienced nearly as much as, uh, of as uh, I would have at their age. So this one student at least, and so um, you know maybe it was only one, but uh, she talked about this. I imagine some of the rest of them felt it, that it was helpful for her to read about these characters having a kind of isolation thrust upon them, having this feeling of being cut off from the rest of the world uh, having people they wanted to see and couldn't see, right? All the things that happened in this book that they in some way were going through. And, and they felt that she said, at least, you no, know, Camus just nailed it, that he really got the experience right in terms of the, not just the physical description, though, obviously that, but the, the spiritual dimension, if you want to put it that way, that he really got the, the experience of it.
0: Maybe you could just say something about who Camus is and why as a philosopher, you're attracted to Camus? Like, Why do you want to teach him? Um, Why is he interesting to you?
1: Yeah, great. So very quickly, just in terms of who he was, um, he was a a French Algerian writer, French citizen born in Algeria, Uh, lived quite a bit of his life, including his childhood in Algeria, and it had a huge impact on him. He felt very happy and at home there. Uh, Ended up writing a lot about it. uh, Ended up obviously involved in the French-Algerian, very complicated political situation of that time. uh, And and became a figure of much controversy because of his involvement. Um, Wrote several works of philosophy. Wrote three novels, a number of plays and stories. uh, Won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957, I think. And then... A couple years after that, if I'm right, uh, was killed in a car accident. And he was still, I think, in his late 40s. So uh, it was a short career in that sense and an extremely productive career uh, and extremely successful in terms of, um, again, the Nobel Prize. And the the plague was a huge uh, success, both critically and uh, in terms of sales when it came out uh, in 1947. Um, So he he was a very well-known, well-respected writer. And yet also, uh, as many successful writers do, you know, seemed agonized about it in some ways, uh, s- suspicious of his own success, um, had many, I, I mentioned the controversy about his intervention in the uh, Algerian uh, war and so on, but also he had a famous falling out with Sartre. Uh, you know, it's the typical French intellectual thing of the time, right? they're all fighting with each other and so on. Um, and then there were all the rivalries and stuff, but the, the fallout with Sartre was a big one. He really, in many ways, I think, my impression at least is he's more respected now and has steadily become more respected than during his life. During his life, he had a lot of intellectual opponents and uh, he was controversial. And now I'm sure you could find people that didn't like him, but on the whole, he seems to be regarded, I think, for a lot of reasons, and I think mostly rightfully in a very positive light. Um, Largely just in terms of, I think of him as a, you know, it's hard to be a moral philosopher in some sense and, and, be a good person and not sort of end up on the wrong side or saying some dumb things. And he was always a very thoughtful, sensible person who was willing to change his mind. Or, uh, I mean, part of the fallout with Sartre, for instance, was that that uh, was over communism, right? Uh, which they were both very <laughs> attracted to for a while, and then Camus decided, I think, for what a very good reasons, uh, at least in its Stalinist form and so on, just wasn't working and was actually terrible. Well, uh, yeah,
0: I mean, I think he realized it's a murderous yeah. It's that as bad as bad. It opposed,
1: right, so yeah. and he said no, and he was right, and Sartre, like many intellectuals at the time, stuck with communism and said, "No, no, you've betrayed us, and looking back, it's of course we I certainly, and I think a lot of us <laughs> tend to think Camus was right. Sartre was wrong about that, so right um in terms of what I like about Camus and why I'm drawn to him, probably that gives you some idea anyway, but uh, I think one of the interesting things for me about him is I, I'm much more drawn to his literary work than to his philosophical work. Um, I enjoy the myth of Sisyphus, but I've never really been clear on what he's trying to say exactly. And I think there's a lot of bad arguments in it and so on. Uh, I like the rebel somewhat better. That's quite good. But still, there's a lot of passages where you just read it and think, you know, what are you trying to say? As with most French philosophers of the time and so on. But, uh, but his novels and his plays and stories are fantastic. Um, he's mm-hmm. such a great writer. And he's one of the very few writers, I think, that manages to write in kind of an overtly philosophical way, not just where the philosophy is submerged and you have to kind of dig it out, but where it is kind of on the surface a lot of the time. And yet it works. You know, the books are still readable and interesting and pleasurable. and So I think it's he had almost a magic – which Sartre, for instance, I don't think had. I mean, his novels are interesting, but they're not enjoyable.
0: And his Uh, philosophy is basically unreadable.
1: Pretty much. I I would agree. That's right.
0: I mean, look, he's not – He's not making my top ten. I'm not gonna lie; like he's not, not even close. But I still think that he's very good, and I think he tends to be dismissed, especially by our tribe, analytic philosophers, because um, he relies on metaphor. Yes. Um, he relies on myth. He his he doesn't have neat and tidy and obvious arguments, but I think. Part of the reason for that is that he's wrestling with the angels, you know, he's really confronting these deep existential questions and he kind of recognizes that there are no easy or tidy arguments when it comes to thinking about the absurd or thinking about whether your life is meaningful. The myth of Sisyphus it starts out as a meditation on whether or not you should kill yourself. Right. Like, so you know, the question of philosophy is whether or not you should just kill yourself. Well, <laughs> that's quite a question, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, he's not joking. He's 100% earnest. Another thing that I really admire about Camus, he grew up in poverty. So he, he grows up in Algeria in poverty. Maybe he's controversial because I think in a sense he's somewhat on the side of Um, the colonial project at least insofar as he himself benefited from it so he obviously benefited from French education Um, in a sense I think Camus had a profound gratitude for the education he received Um, even though at the end of the day he's going to reject the tradition that he sort of raised in. So something I find really interesting about Camus is that he wrote um, what I guess is the equivalent of a dissertation on um, St. Augustine and Neoplatonism.
1: Yeah, right. So
0: he, so he knows his Christian European tradition in a serious way, and yeah. he's really taking it seriously in his work. He's obviously rejecting it, but he I think he has a deep understanding of that which he is rejecting, he is sometimes often difficult to understand, but that's because he's working at the level of even in his philosophical writing, he's working at the level of metaphor. He's drawing on these images from myth. Right, this this character of Sisyphus um, is supposed to be a kind of, I guess, it's a kind of existential hero for him. So, for our listeners who don't know the myth of Sisyphus. Um, the myth of Sisyphus is like the hero in light of the absurd. So Camus' understanding of the absurd uh, basically goes like this. Hey, we're rational creatures. And so we have this natural desire to make sense of the world, to see the world as intelligible. Um, unfortunately, the world is radically unintelligible. So like we're a, th- we're a creature that searches for meaning and we find none. So this is the absurd right? We're, we're like built to find meaning in a world that has no meaning. This is right. crazy. What do you do, right? When you find yourself in this situation, do you kill yourself? A, cl- a clear option. Right? <laughs> um, m- maybe that makes sense. Um, but ultimately he says, no, it doesn't make sense. It's not what you should do. You should be like Sisyphus. So Sisyphus is condemned for all eternity to a meaningless activity, right? He has to roll this rock up this enormous hill, And then it's just going, as soon as he gets to the top, right, it's just going to roll back down and he has to do it again. So imagine this is like a quintessential meaningless activity. And that's supposed to be a metaphor for your life, right? (laughs) Right. But what does he say? You know, be stronger than your rock, right? You've just got to do it. Just gird your loins and, and keep pushing that rock.
1: Find meaning in it. Yeah, there, there's no meaning there objectively defined. So there's a creative aspect, and but we can make it meaningful. And of course, this metaphor shows up in its own way in the plague. Um, I, I think most uh, clearly in an exchange between. Uh, Ryu, the Dr. Ryu, who's kind of the main character of the book, and who turns out to be the narrator, but of course we don't know he's narrating until the last few pages of the book, which is an interesting question of why Camus do that, right? So maybe we can come back to that if you want. But there's a there's a conversation between him and his friend Taru, and they're, they're probably the two most admirable characters in the book, and the ones that come closest to speaking for Camus and articulating his own ideas. And they're talking about this fight against disease and how Disease, Rio says, always comes back. You know, you can't eradicate it; you can only hold it off. Just as with any particular individual, you can't keep them from dying. You can only delay death. Eventually, you're going to die. Eventually, you know, you're going to lose every battle with every one of your patients. And Taru says to him, uh, "Oh, so, so finally, now I see what your what your life is and what your task is. Right? I see what this plague means to you. It means constant, unending defeat. And it's like the and, and Rio said, Yeah, you know, that's right. That's it.' It's like he's understood in that moment." And this is part of Camus's vision uh, for what it is to be a human being, that you accept defeat and you realize that that's part of facing reality. And uh, the theme of facing reality comes throughout the book. Like Rio, for instance, is the first one to even say, uh, I've seen a few cases of this, it's clearly the plague. Everyone else in town is saying it's something else. You know, it can't be that. Uh, both because they don't want it to be the plague, because then they know they have to isolate and so on. Uh, clear parallels with today, obviously, right? Uh, and also because they just can't believe it is, because the plague has been eradicated and it's the modern era. And this, this, you know, this is a medieval disease. It's insane to think that uh, it, it is that failure in a way to face absurdity, right? It's the failure to face the fact that. There is this crazy disease, which in a way makes no sense. Like by our rational lights, it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be that this thing, this germ is out there. And yet Ryu opens his eyes and says, you know, look, uh, my, my rational brain might be saying that it can't be that because th- there's no plague in this world. It's been eradicated. And yet clearly I can see that it is. I have to say what I see. So Ryu consistently throughout the book represents the the character that faces reality and speaks the truth and doesn't hide it behind abstract theories or anything like that, or try to construct abstract theories to justify other views and so on. And so part of the truth he faces is this uh, truth of the disease, which can't really be beaten. It can only be, you know, you can get it to submit for a while, and then eventually it pops up again somewhere else. And eventually it kills you or something else kills you, and something kills everybody. And yeah, but you got to keep pushing that rock up that hill, right? That daily doing your job, as he says at one point, right? And doing your job well that's what it is to be a good person. It, it's no more complicated than that.
0: Right. I mean, he's incredibly down to earth. You know, people, people tend to get philosophical during a catastrophe and he's just not having it. Um, just every time that someone um, tries to understand in a deep way, you know, they, they want to place some narrative on this, whether it's religious or 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 something else. He he just resists it, you know. And he's just there to do his job, which, since he's a doctor, is is to try to save people. But of course, he can't save them. It's the plague. Right. He he basically, you know, he's he's just there to tell people that they're going to die and to try to limit the damage. But I think you're right that he's he's a realist. And I hadn't thought about this before. But something that you said makes me think that, um, in a, there's there's a sense in which he, Dr. Ria, kind of embodies both aspects of Camus' thought. So there's the kind of the negative aspect of the myth of Sisyphus, which is sort of like the absurd. You, the master virtue. So actually, I wonder what you think about this, but I would say that for Camus, at least in the myth of Sisyphus, the master virtue is courage. You have to have the courage to face reality, right? See it for what it is. And he says, live without hope. Yeah. And that takes courage. You know, I sometimes call Camus like the lonesome cowboy of philosophy. Like you just have to bravely face it alone, guys. I want to hear what your thoughts are about this, but- there's a sense in which um, I see him as almost, he's almost like the anti dostoevsky in a sense. If you think about the Brothers K, what is the message really of that novel? Um, what is Zosima supposed to teach us? It's that we must love the world. Like the only true response to suffering and evil is to love the world, to have a posture where you can love the world, where you can embrace the world. Right. And this will be transfiguring. Like this is the only there's no there's no rational argument that's gonna solve the problem of evil and suffering. It's It's just a certain way of life where you love the world. But Camus seems to want to rebel against the world. And and I think so does Rhea, right? Like he this is like the deep tension between him and Father Panelou.
1: Yeah. Is that how we want to say it,
0: Panaloo? Sure.
1: <laughs> That's as good as yeah, I like it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. How are you gonna say it? I have I've been saying it basically the same way. So okay, great. <laughs>
0: yeah. we're just vulgar Americans. Yes. Um, but, but um yeah. So yeah. so I, I, I just first of all, we should I, I guess we should sort of step back and maybe say who the main characters are.
1: Oh, very sympathetic and very interested. Um Main character. So we mentioned Doctor Rio, the narrator, not revealed as narrator till the very end, but the central character. His friend Taru, um, also a very admirable character, who helps in the fight against the fl- the plague. The journalist Rembert.
0: What can I? Sorry, what is yeah. the deal with Taru? He's like this mystery man. He just yeah. shows up, and it's like never really explained. It's like who is this guy?
1: Yeah, it's one of the more mysterious things about the book. And uh, every time I read it, I sort of had – I mean, I'd remembered certain things about him because he's quite important. And then I – you know, but I always – I'd forgotten sort of how central he is and how little we know about him in a way. But, of course, we do find out something really significant about him uh, towards the end. Um, Well, wait. Maybe I should come back to that in just a second. Let's just look at a couple of other characters first and we'll come back. But – Uh, you mentioned Father Pendle, who uh, is the main religious figure in the town, the Jesuit priest and he gives a couple of sermons throughout the book in which he expresses some of the ideas that you were just talking about Um, and then who else? Grand the novelist uh, he did a civil servant who's continually rewriting the first sentence of his novel and can't get past it uh but it's apparently still supposed to be admirable in some way and that to me is not quite as clear other than the obvious sense in which he too does his work and you know shows up every day and does his job so yeah you have these sanitation crews going out and really risking their lives because you know they're trying to stop the plague by cleaning up places that are germ-ridden obviously and many of them die um Including Taru ultimately, just when of course it looks like the plague is abating and they've found a serum that does work and et cetera, uh, in a nasty turn of events, Taru succumbs to it and he dies. So it's not a happy ending for him in that way. Uh, but I wanted to mention the important thing we do find out about Taru in his past because it's kind of this, I think, crucial bit in the book, uh, especially metaphorically speaking, where he reveals that. Uh, His father was a prosecutor and uh, argued for the death penalty, basically, for various sorts of criminals, uh, which he didn't know. Taru that is didn't know about when he was a kid until one day he went to work to see his father at work. And there's this poor poor guy in the dock and there's his father talking about the reasons this guy should be put to death. And it just has this kind of electrifying effect on Tarou, who... Uh, it sort of sets the course of the rest of his life because he's so horrified at the fact not only that this is happening in his society, so that he kind of feels uh, complicit in it. It's like it's corrupted him. You know, he lives in this society where this is going on, but also that his father, you know, his own father, who seems like this nice guy, you know, breakfast every morning, there he is, he's sweet and so on, right, is doing this, and so that sort of. Evil can lurk in anyone's heart and you wouldn't know it just by looking at them or even being close to them and so on. So he becomes this opponent of the death penalty. And he finally, you know, three quarters of the way through the book or more, I think, reveals this to to Ryu in this long, complex conversation. And part of what's interesting about it is that he uses the plague as a metaphor for this. I mean, it's a clearly overtly metaphorical moment. It's not just Camus kind of slipping a metaphor in, but it's Tarou uh, very overtly using this as a metaphor, saying, I had the plague for years before it came along and, and popped up in Iran, right? Then what he means by this is I was morally infected with this, and uh, as we all are. But you know, at some young age, I happened to realize that I was morally infected with it. And ever since, I've made it my mission to stop this thing. So this sort of subterranean metaphorical level of equating this biological phenomenon, the the plague, the bubonic plague, with the moral phenomenon of, of evil and collaboration with evil and so on, suddenly sort of leaps out and actually becomes explicit in this moment in the novel. There's a character in the novel who's actually making that metaphor himself, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing to have happen. You know, it's surprising in a way that it works. You'd almost think it would throw us out of the novel. Um, but for me at least it does work it's fine you know I mean the, the metaphor was there anyway I was already sort of onto it but to have it brought out in this way uh, does actually did actually seem to me this time as, as in all my the readings of the novel I've done to I don't know magnify it somehow to put, to put a, a microscope on it and sort of let us see you know it in all its force in some way like oh yeah this really makes sense the plague is not just the plague right it's not just this disease it is that and obviously, many people are reading the plague right now because they're interested in the plague as the disease because we have a plague of our own right now. But, of course, when Camus wrote it, um, it was, among other things, an allegory for the Nazi occupation of France. And so he's talking about uh, this terrible evil that comes into your homeland and which you have the choice to either fight or go along with. And he's looking around, seeing many people collaborating and going along with it. And one of the questions behind the novel is, what is it that leads people to do that? Why do people go along with evil as opposed to standing up against it and fighting it with everything they've got? And I think he proposes or floats a number of uh, possible answers in the book, including um, one that relates to what you were talking about in terms of the myth of Sisyphus, that in the end we know we're going to lose anyway, so why bother? It's another version of the why not kill yourself question. We know evil's going to win in the end. We know we're all going to die sooner or later. We can't beat the plague. We can't beat this bad stuff that's happening. It's a lot of work to resist. Um, it's, right? Why it's <clears full throat>
0: rebel blood. when you know that the empire is stronger? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's a good question. Like, why aren't all these people just psychotic? Um, right.
1: And some and, of them were. That's one thing that happened to people. So.
0: Yeah, many and I mean
1: more responses.
0: Right. Um, like, why? Why fight a losing battle? Mm-hmm. Why think that it's rational? I mean, because clearly, Camus's position is that it, it is ultimately rational good. I don't know if I want to use the language of virtue, but why not virtuous <laughs> to um, to rebel? I mean, it's the same thing. Like, why why push that rock up a hill? Yeah, or, right. Why you is know, that rational? to
1: roll back down again, right? Why does it make sense?
0: You know, he's he's captured something about the nature of humanity that we're we're finite, right? We're limited. We are in some sense we're losers. Yeah, yeah. And there's some right. sense in which this is this isn't deep conflict with our rationality. Like in virtue of being rational, we strive for the infinite, yet we're finite, right? If we're ever going to get to the infinite, it's not going to be under our own steam. He has a really strong sense of how crazy this is. Right, if, if, like, if you actually take seriously the, the condition of the human, sort of like part angel, part beast, it's, it's actually an incredibly difficult, fraught thing to be. If you kind of teach any philosophy of religion or you are thinking at all about the classical problem of evil, right? So how can we believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God um, who created the world, Um, in accordance with his wisdom and justice and goodness, um, when actually the world's pretty terrible. Um, So either he's not as smart or as powerful or as good as we thought he was. Like, what's going on there? And um, But there's always this separation in these discussions between natural evil and moral evil. And there's kind of this um, assumption that Natural evil is sort of like easier to explain away and that actually like the real problem is moral evil or some, actually it sort of depends on where you are in the literature. So like some people struggle more with moral evil. Moral evil is clearly the emphasis for Dostoevsky. He doesn't seem to care much about natural evil, right? There, of course, the answer is always, yeah, but free will. Yeah. You know, like God created you to be good. What's wrong with you? Like you could have not sinned. So it's on you, right? And that's sort of like one tidy, supposedly tidy resolution to this. Um, but then natural evil, it's like, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're good and then one day a hurricane just right. comes along and, or the plague or whatever. So why did God do that? Camus kind of wanting to run them together in a way that, you know, so making the metaphor for moral evil be a natural evil is is sort of nice. I like that because it, it kind of shows that we'll look at the end of the day, we're talking about evil, right? <laughs> if you think that behind all of this there is an intelligible um, coherent narrative, right? Um, then you have this burden of explaining this evil, Rather than just accepting it and rebelling against it and doing your best to fight it, even if you 're going to lose
1: I think so there's a lot going on there. you know some people I, I think Roland Barth was one. he really criticized Camus for this, and he said, you know you met your novel as as an allegory of Nazi occupation, but uh, the Nazis were not germs. They were human beings doing this, you know, and so on. It's not a good allegory. And uh, Kimmer responded, I figured exactly what he said. I think part of what he said was the obvious point that, well, it's an allegory. It's not supposed to, you know, correspond point by point necessarily. But uh, I, I know he said more and I can't remember, but I think there's a lot we could say on his behalf that there's a sense in which something like Nazi evil almost should be treated like a disease. I mean, it's, you, you I think we like to have this fantasy that when when we have a human antagonist, we not only want to beat them, we eventually want them to sort of uh, admit that they were wrong. We want to really get them, you know, beat them so badly that they say, yes, you know, we get it. We were terrible people. We apologize, whatever. And that was never going to happen with the Nazis, just like it would never happen with the plague terms, right? It's not a question of convincing them that they're wrong or dealing with them on a human level or something like that. The kind of victory that's possible in that case, and maybe this goes back to the idea of, Ryo's job as an unending defeat, you know, you're just trying to push it back. You're not trying to fix them save their souls, make it right, get them to see your side or anything like that. In both cases, you're just trying to push it back so it doesn't kill as many people uh, or so people take longer to die basically. And so I feel like there's a real, there's something right about that. It's not just that the allegory doesn't line up in a certain way it does line up or it captures something about the experience that seems right to me and that maybe we sometimes falsify in our typical ways you mentioned a little while ago, but that's putting these narrative constructions on evil and on things that happen in the world. And part of being a philosopher like Camus who takes the absurd seriously is to say narratives can falsify. They, they lead us to say this can't be the plague. You know, they know they, people would never do that to each other. That's too terrible. And nobody's that bad. And so on. And narratives just falsify all sorts of things that actually happen in the world, which we have to open our eyes and acknowledge you know, as real things.
0: And the more I think about it, and I think about, I mean, I think the way that this novel is structured is, is actually like really, really brilliant, but because it's, um, it's like a looking back, um, and it's this weird narrative frame where the narrator is talking about himself in the third person <laughs> and right he's, yeah. And he's relying on like, like some of his principal source material is like other people's narratives, like Terror's diaries, I think, um, are huge for him. Um, And then, like, he doesn't tell you until the end, like, oh, like, the main character in this is me, the narrator, huh? I guess I can
1: tell you now. (laughs) It's like four (laughs) pages from the end, if that. And and there's also this crazy moment, maybe there's more than one, but I know there's at least one sort of early on in the book, where he says something, I wish I had the exact words, but he says something like, you know, hearing this, Dr. Ryu must have thought... (laughs) And it's because we know now he's Dr. Ryu, right? Like he's not it's really only talking about himself in the third person. It's like he's speculating about what he must have thought at this time.
0: Right. It's well, it's only fact. it's only totally bizarre when you read it the second time. Because the right, first time right. you're reading it, you're like, okay, this is fine. And then at the end, you're like, what? But then the second time you read it, <laughs> yeah. it's just really uncanny. like Because you realize he's just talking about himself in the third person, the time, which is really yeah. weird. There's so much in this novel about time um and the way that we experience time and the way that the plague changes how we experience time well basically in the beginning nobody wants to face the truth hey all of a sudden there are thousands of rats dying everywhere and i don't know doesn't that seem weird and like everyone just wants to ignore it <laughs> you know this doesn't augur well you know part 1 ends i think with the city gates closing like Yeah, I think that's right. That it's a plague. And then part two is sort of like the beginning where everyone is like in this state of shock and um, just really peak anxiety and fear. So if I think back to March, for like a solid three weeks, it was just nothing but anxiety is so extreme like i couldn't sleep i think i spent most of my life on twitter it was just like a complete like wow. what what was the point of any of that and then you just you can't sustain that no right so so part 2 is like peak emotion right fear anxiety and then part 3 it's like eh <laughs> <laughs> right it's just yes. it's just another day in the plague
1: that's right and another right? Day. that's right and
0: that's, that's right. and that's how it is now Yeah. Right. It's kind of like, okay. And and frankly, at some point, the plague becomes boring. Yeah. Right. It's like, I don't, I don't want to think about the plague anymore. That's right. Which is
1: something that uh, I think the book captures. And again, it's not that it's a boring book, but it comes close in a way that I think is necessary to capturing the actual experience. It's not an exciting book. There's very little that happens in the book you would consider exciting. Uh, and it is a book again where there is a clear antagonist, but not a human antagonist, not one who could anyway be interesting to you, who's plotting to defeat you or something. Like th- this antagonist is a non-entity in a sense. And so the fight is just day after day, the same routine, the same thing. It's boring. Part of what would make it hard for someone like Ryu or anyone fighting the plague, uh, would be how boring it is. So day after day, you have to do the same stuff with very little sense of progress most of the time. And I find it fascinating just in terms of normal life continuing and so on that one of the details in in the novel, which does not correspond to reality, I think for most of us, but uh, is that they keep going to the movies through the whole plague. And not only is this kind of crazy because, of course, they can't get new movies in. So they're just showing the same movies over and over again. But people are feeling so tense and in need of contact that they go anyway. But also because, of course, you're obviously exposing yourself doing that. I mean, it's got to be they've got to know this is a very dangerous thing to do. And yet they keep right. doing it. They have this need for routines of ordinary uh, life to continue.
0: Right. And another thing that happens in part three is that Camus discusses how poverty becomes a stronger motivator than fear, which, of course, is obviously, obviously, what's happening. Right. right. We see. Yeah. Um, you know, that the people are revolting against further measures of quarantine, not because they're bored, but because they're starving, because they don't know how they're going to pay their rent, because right. they don't, right? And they, um, and, and I, and there's this kind of really grotesque ritual on social media of kind of like shaming these people. And it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, look, social media is sort of grotesque generally, <laughs> right, but right. it's kind of like, well, so I, uh, on the one hand, I I agree that maybe their tactics and maybe the optics and maybe their language is a bit uncouth. Okay. But actually like we should take seriously the, the position that they're finding themselves in, namely that um, this is not a period of retreat and solitude for them. um, And they're coming from a place of legitimate need.
1: That's right. Yes. To the extent that it, I mean, there's also the ideological part and I think that's quite separate, but the, the cases, the place where this is a genuine economic concern, this is a dire situation for a lot of people. And I agree with you. We really need to take that seriously.
0: I mean, I'm not sure how much we can separate poverty from fear, because when Mm. you're in poverty, right, what you're afraid of is that you can't feed your kids, that you've lost your dignity, that you don't know that you have a future, etc. There has to be something there to preserve if you're going to be afraid of dying. And so, I I don't know, part three was like really resonating with me. The f- so one, there are the two sermons yes. by Father Panelo, and then there's the scene with the um, young boy who is dying of the plague, but there's like this experimental serum right. that they want to try out. And for some reason, they think he's the perfect candidate for this. Those two scenes are, are related. So maybe we should talk about those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've alluded to the sermons before. Um So I think it's worth saying that, first of all, Pendler gives these two sermons in the course of the book. They have something in common, and they also differ in a certain important way. It's thinking kind of evolves. Uh, But in both cases, it it doesn't evolve in a way that makes it acceptable either to Rio or to Camus, presumably. So he starts off uh, the early sermon in the early stage of the plague was a very sort of doctrinal conventional kind of uh, moralistic account that uh, the world is fair and therefore if you're suffering you've done something to bring it on yourself so god has sent this plague because we have not been good believers and we haven't done what we need to do to please him and therefore he's doing this to wake us up and to punish us at the same time so the
0: plague was sent to humble the proud
1: humble the proud that's right it's interesting he mentions humility in both sermons that's very interesting I think it's Teru at some point talks about people having the truth with a capital T, right? And that's what makes you dangerous. If you think you've got the truth with a capital T, that's when you feel like you can kill someone. You know what's true. You know it's right to kill someone. So Pendleau is kind of one of these people who feels like he's got it figured out to this point where he's got the truth with a capital T. And he'll tell you, well, yeah, people are dying, but it's okay because here's how it works. I'll explain it to you and I'll rationalize it and show you why it's all all right.
0: Well, yeah, and he's trying to do theodicy.
1: Yes, yes. always a mistake. You're right, Um, (laughs) exactly. And I mean, Camus is so deeply anti-theodicy.
0: This reminds me of the Book of Job,
1: Mm. Um,
0: because, like, who does God get mad at in the Book of Job? It's not (laughs) Job's
1: friends, (laughs) yeah. His
0: friends, right? And why? Why does he get so mad at Job's friends?
1: They lied. (laughs) <laughs> they they explained and said, you know, this is all okay and you deserve what's happening to you.
0: Because they, yeah, because they thought they had it figured out. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're trying to explain the ways of God to Job. Who's like, you know, I mean, Job sort of like takes it on the chin for a while, but then he just kind of breaks down and he's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <too> messed up. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and then come in, there are, like, three friends who come in um, in successive waves to sort of, like, ex- patiently explain to Job the ways of God. And this does not make God happy.
1: My theory, and it can't be anything more than a theory, because who knows, is that he represents a Christian view. Um, but I think that, from what I know about Camus, he certainly wouldn't have said, oh, all Christians think this or hold to this. So... It's a view that he had encountered in some Christians that he found very objectionable and offensive, and he wanted to reject that. Uh, also, to Penelope's credit, and we should say this, you know, his, his thinking does evolve, and in the second sermon, he comes much closer to the position you were just talking about, where he basically says, I've seen the plague kill children. They obviously hadn't done anything wrong. God isn't punishing the wicked here. He's just punishing everybody, apparently. I can't pretend to understand it. Uh, But as a good Christian, I must still approve it. And so I still endorse it. So it's closer to what you're talking about there. So it's a different kind of Christian view. Uh, And it's still clear, I think, that both Ryu and Camus reject it because they're going to say, look, you know, I can't possibly endorse any scheme, whether God's responsible or not, that would involve the suffering of children. But it is a different view than expressed in the first sermon. So maybe we can say that Penelope actually represents two Christian views because his view changes
0: yeah uh, so he's, he's
1: not like, but <laughs>
0: yeah so he's really humbled by this experience of, um I don't know if he he must be there to give last rites or something, but there's yeah this,
1: when the kid dies, yeah, he's there, so
0: yeah, so there's this um there's this boy, and at first he's with his parents, and Dr. Rio comes in basically to do his job, which is to just say you have the plague. And once he tells you that you have the plague, there is um, just a, a standard practice of quarantining the victim. And in fact, the only part of this that actually seemed really inauthentic to me um, was the reaction of the parents. Mm. So, so the doctor comes in and he says, okay, yeah, he totally has the plague. You're gonna have to leave him. Now, the parents know that the kid's gonna die and that he's going to die alone without them. And there's like no – they're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, doctor. <laughs> and then they just leave. And I'm like yeah. – <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? That was the only part where I was just like, right. this really doesn't seem like how it would go down. Right. I mean, you, you would have to drag me kicking and screaming. I mean, I'd probably try to murder you if you told me that, oh, yeah, you just have to go let your kid die alone. This would not – I would not consent to this. And the fact that they're just so blase about it. Anyway, that was weird to me. So the parents leave um, to go be quarantined. And it's just, and there's like a, there's like a death watch because they're giving him the, for some reason, they think he's a good candidate for this um, experimental serum. So they give him the serum and then they just want to see what its effects are. What ends up happening is that it doesn't cure him. But it, it, but it prolongs his suffering. Like right. he would, so actually, he would have been better off without it because he just would have died faster, and right. so he would have suffered less. So this, this kind of basically, what the serum does is it prolongs his suffering, and the suffering is, is pretty grotesque and heinous, and. The both Dr. Rhea and Panalu are there for most of it. So they're, so they're on this death watch together. And then at the end of it, so, so the boy dies, obviously. And at the end of it, um, they have this really interesting conversation. He's saying, you know, that child uh, was innocent. You know it as well as I do. I guess it's um, Panalu says to Rhea, why was there that anger in your voice just now? What we've been seeing was as unbearable to me as it was to you, Rhea turns towards Panalu. I know I'm sorry, but weariness is a kind of madness, and there are times when the only feeling I have is one of mad revolt. I understand, Panelu said in a low voice. That sort of thing is revolting because it passes our human understanding, but perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. Ryo straightened up slowly. He gazed at Panalu, summoning to his gaze all the strength and fervor he could muster against his weariness. Then he shook his head. No, father. I have a very different idea of love. And until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. And, you know, Panalu has this response. Ah, oh, doctor, I just realized what is meant by grace, Right. And and is and Rhea's like, yeah, I don't I don't have grace. And then I think he says something like, Look, you know, my job is is not to work for men's salvation. Like I'm just here to try to fight disease. And to me this was actually incredibly reminiscent of the Brothers K. Because there we have this this child who's who's tortured. That's a case of moral evil, right? right. Um that's like some jerk master and and this poor peasant child who um i I think like hurts his dog the master has the child ripped to shreds by his dogs um in front of his mother and yvonne kind of brings this story up and he's like look don't ask me don't ask me to embrace this world like i don't want to i return my ticket and it's a and it's not You know, Yvonne's claim isn't that, look, it's too hard. It's that it would be wrong. It would be morally disgusting for me to embrace a world in which children are tortured um, or to embrace, ultimately, a God that created such a world. Is this the same thing going on here? Does Camus have a different message? Is Rhea just Yvonne?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think pretty close. I think uh, this is where Ryu takes a moral stand in a way that for the most part in the novel, he doesn't, uh, mostly just out of modesty, mostly just because, you know, he, he, he's not an abstract guy. Like you said earlier, he's, he would say, you know, philosophizing is not my business. Uh, even here, as you say, he says, I'm a doctor. I, I don't worry about souls, right? I, I cure disease. I try to tend to the body. That's what I do. So he's got this, very modest in a way limited but i don't mean that in a negative sense kind of view of what his role is uh it's related to what he says about heroism right there's a couple times when to someone says oh you're, you're like a hero or maybe it's heroic doing what you do and rio always brushes that away so i'm not a hero he says i just want to be a man he says um i just want to do my daily job i just want to do what i should be doing that, to help people and calling me a hero or, or focusing on these things, like what the sanitation squads do and, and calling that heroic, he says, uh, I think it's the narrator that says this, but of course we find out the narrator is uh, Israel. He says uh, that sort of puts a special light on them that raises them above the ordinary level as if that wasn't what most people do. And in fact, I think most people most of the time are good. Uh, human nature is actually good most of the time. So so he has that very sort of modest and optimistic view of human nature. Yeah, what I'm doing is good and I'm helping people. That's what anyone would do. I'm no better than most people, etc. But this is a point where he's sort of placed in this position where he, for whatever reason, feels like he has to dig in and, and reject a view and really take a firm moral stand. Say, no, you know, I, I can't think that. Um, your idea of loving the scheme of things in which something like this happens is something I can't abide. That would be collaborating, basically. To go back to the collaboration allegory again, uh, in Ryu's view. And I I take it in Camus view, right? I think you know Ryu's really speaking for Camus here. That would be collaborating with evil. So um, you know, you mentioned his book The Rebel a little while ago. He's around the time that this he's writing this book, he's writing The Rebel as well and like you said, he's rebelling against the world in a way. Part of his absurdist view of reality is we have a moral nature that isn't reflected in objective reality. And, so, and that's why we feel like exiles. That's why we feel like we can't be at home in this world because it doesn't meet our moral standards. And So then we have this choice of sort of selling ourselves and our standards short and loving it or rejecting it. Which isn't to say, you know, rejecting all love. I think there's a kind of love here that Camus is really interested in, some sort of a solidarity-based love with other people, something like that. But not loving the world as a whole because it's a bad place, which is where our, part of maybe where our, our love for other people, our fellow men and so on comes from.
0: I mean, I think there's a tension here in Camus' view. And that is like, you want to reject the world and you want to rebel. Um, Presumably that means that you want to fight for what is good. And in Dr. Rieu in particular, he wants to make people whole again in the sense that he wants to make them healthy so that they can have a chance to have a good life. If you want to say that there is good to be had, in the world, then you are affirming it to a certain extent. Like if you're on the side of life, if Dr. Ria is on the side of human life where he's going to risk his own life for the sake of getting people back to health, nobody thinks that health is the highest good. Nobody thinks that health is the end. Certainly Camus isn't so ridiculous as to think that. So what is health for? right? Like, what are you living for? So look, there has to be something there that you're affirming, right? Yeah. There has to be some good in the world that you think is intelligible. Otherwise, right? You would just kill yourself. That would be the rational thing to do.
1: Right. 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 Yes.
0: Um, and so if if the revolt makes sense, then it's only against like what's bad, which implies there is objective good and bad, Right. We are to reject the bad and affirm the good, but like so far there should be no disagreement between Panalu and Rhea, right? Every, everybody agrees about that. Um, I, I, and, and I think I think the real disagreement and I would love to know what you what you think is yeah. Panalu is committed to the suffering being intelligible and to the suffering itself being redemptive, right? Panalu is committed as a Christian to the redemptive quality of suffering. And I think Camus just is really resistant to that. I think that's the big divide is that, you know, so so Panalu wants to say, and again, I think he totally messes this up. I mean, I don't want to say that his second sermon's like awesome because I, I don't think it is. Um, nevertheless, I do, I do think that he's ineptly trying to say something that I, that I do think is true. And that is that a, a human being will suffer. A human being doesn't have to try to suffer. A human being will suffer because a human being is a finite, vulnerable creature. And the world is full of suffering, um, finite things suffer. But that our suffering isn't meaningless, and that our suffering can be—it has redemptive potential, right? For a rational creature, I think you know, like you know, the, the poor bird that's suffering—you should you should just put it out of its memory <laughs> misery. Like it's not um, the bird isn't going to make any sense out of that. Okay, <laughs> so like the the merciful thing to do is to just kill it. But it's not merciful to just kill a human who's suffering. So I think it's one of the tasks of human life. It's really hard, is to make sense of your own suffering. Um, That's a task for us. And is that really a task that Camus wants to reject, Mm. like to just say, no, it's meaningless and we have to revolt against it. I'm not really sure I understand the positive vision there. So, yeah.
1: Wow. You've given me so much to talk about. Oh my God. I'm not going to be able to keep it all straight. So, uh, (laughs) where do I start? Uh, Maybe I'll start sort of at the end, and then if I can keep track of it, I'll go back to a couple of the other things. But um, I think that Camus, certainly Camus has no problem with saying, this is actually more the beginning than the end, but Camus has no problem with saying, uh, we can embrace and endorse some aspects of the world we're not, the, the rebellion I'm talking about is not a revolt against everything and saying, you know, there is no, nothing good in the world or anything like that. Camus clearly thinks by the time of the plague, at least there is good stuff in the world. There's an issue about whether he thinks those good things are objectively good and what that means. And I think that he really shied away from that for various reasons. And that was probably a mistake. Um, there's a lot of talk in the plague. Uh, Tarou, for instance, when he's talking about the death penalty again, talks about people's arguments and how he's heard a lot of good arguments for the death penalty, which doesn't mean that he believes in it. He, he's Rather, what he's saying is, I'm worried about arguments because they can convince us to do terrible things. So there's a lot of skepticism about argumentation and even about reason in a way you know, that comes in a lot of these discussions that I think is part of what's going on with Camus here and part of why he wouldn't want to say that or why he would be leery of the idea that suffering can be intelligible and so on is, again, that putting, in his view, you know, putting an abstract uh, framework of intelligibility onto this stuff is almost like falsifying it again through narrative or something, right? It leads us to then say these terrible things like, well, it's okay that people suffer, and When when it's not or something like that. And I think that uh, in The Rebel, again, so being written around the same time, you know, As we said earlier, he rejects communism. One of the main reasons, I think probably in fact the main reason that uh, Camus rejected communism kind of on a theoretical level was because uh, it included the idea that we're working towards a futuristic utopia where everything's wonderful. And in order to get there, we have to sacrifice human beings in the present. So there's going to be violence, there's going to be a violent revolution, people will die. But in a sense, it's, historically speaking, at least it's redemptive, right? Or it's, you know, it's it's a means to an end, and the end is so great that the deaths of individual people don't matter. So that kind of rejection, the fact that Camus thought that could never be right, it could never be right to sacrifice an individual person for the sake of, you know, other people, even humanity as a whole. Because he'd say, well, look, it's not really humanity as a whole, right? Because it doesn't include the people you sacrificed. sacrifice. No, they don't get to be in the utopia. And I think a very similar thing is moving him here. And so I think that what he would say about this is he could agree. I I don't see him as necessarily, he has these worries about intelligibility or whatever, right? But I, I don't necessarily see him as completely rejecting the idea that suffering can be redemptive. And in fact, I think that this maybe is a larger separate topic, and so I don't want to get too deeply into it, but I think it's clear that even though he's wary of this, there are moments in the novel where he talks about the plague as waking the people of Iran up. They're, they're asleep at the beginning, and, and they suddenly – in a way, you, know, you said yourself a little while ago about how you're talking with your neighbors, and you see the life before you in a way you didn't before, right? And he's he does kind of allow that in a way, even though he's hesitant about it. He does allow that. There's a sense in which, he, he would never want to say this, but there's a sense in which the plague has been good for the people of Iran to the extent that they are more in touch with reality now than they were before. So I think Camus is aware of that and is willing to acknowledge it. But what I imagine him saying here, and I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, so who knows, but I imagine him saying, this particular example, though, isn't going to fly. The, the kid, right? You're, you're right, suffering is redemptive in a lot of cases. The task of making sense of our suffering and finding it meaningful is an important one and one we need to do etc but this kid who just suffers and then dies at the end there's no redemption for him he's just dead he can't find meaning in it maybe we could find meaning in it if we tried, but that's actually something we shouldn't do because that again is falsifying or or denying you know his actual suffering and his reality Uh, he didn't find any meaning he wasn't redeemed i mean of course you can tell a story in which his soul goes to heaven and is redeemed or something so i mean if that's true you know, it's not that we know for certain, he's not redeemed, but if you can't get yourself to believe in that kind of supernatural framework or something, I think Camus is going to say here on earth, you know, this is the reason why both he and Dostoyevsky talk about this kind of story, right? Because in this kind of story, and these things do happen, it doesn't seem, there, there's no obvious way in which we can make it intelligible or redemptive or something and attempts to do so, so easily slip back into bad theodicy again. You know, well, we learned something from it, so it's okay that the kid was tortured and died or something. Like, that's terrible, right? Pendle is willing to say that. Uh, but Camus wants us not to be willing to say it. And so I think that's okay. going to draw the line. And he can do that, I think, and still say, you know, yes, in fact, suffering is often meaningful, redemptive, intelligible, whatever, you know, like a growth experience, right, whatever it is. But,
0: but I think, yeah, I mean, so I totally agree with everything that you're saying, by the way. Um, and... And if and if and if that's the end of the story, then I'm I'm like 100% on board with Camus. Like, I think that Panalu is being Panglossian. Yes. That is bad, right? I don't know if like Panalu, Pangloss. I don't know if that was intentional, but like this, I, I mean, he does. He lacks humility. He thinks he's got it figured out. Like he goes from this kind of like fire and brimstone sort of, you know, God has sent this plague to punish you to like. Oh well, actually, probably not. But God has sent this plague um, to teach you a lesson, right? That you're, you know, where it's not that like you're blameworthy. It's not that sort of lesson, but it's that you know, it's a it's a purifying. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a kind of purgatory or something. It's a, it's a purifying suffering. It's there has
1: something good about it, whether we can understand what's good or not.
0: Right, and I think I think there he's again. Um, he's being a bit too Panglossian. It's, it's a bit too much of a theodicy. It reminds me exactly of Yvonne. I mean, and and, and then Rio gives the kind of Yvonne um, Karamazov's response, right? So Yvonne um, to Alyosha says, you know, suppose that God created a beautiful, perfect world, but in order to make it, there had to be one child who was tortured to death, right? Um, would you be the architect of such a world? Like he just puts the question to Alyosha, Would you be the architect of such a world? And Alyosha says no. I think him is doing maybe something similar here where he's saying, if that's the trade-off, it's not worth it, right? If I have to sacrifice this kid in order for me to learn a valuable redemptive lesson, that's not a trade-off that I that I want to make, right. right. I wouldn't be the architect of such a world. And I think um, when you put it that way, yeah, it's not a trade-off that you should want to make. Um, but I don't think you should put it that way, right? <laughs> because again, it presupposes that you know the story, that you understand, oh, well, God's making a series of trade-offs. Whatever you think about divine wisdom, I'm pretty sure it's not a cost-benefits analysis. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's not like the big economist in the sky. <laughs> um, so I think this is too simplistic. Like if this is the way that we're going to present Christianity, yeah, it seems it seems bad. Um, I guess I just disagree that that's the best way to present it.
1: I think Camus is going to say, you know, faced with that evidence of the tortured to death child, even – even asking whether it could be justified or something is, is in itself kind of wrong. And certainly, I mean, I think he'd say that. Maybe I should be careful about that. Certainly he would say this. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd say this. Um, saying that there must be a story to be told about it, what, even though we may not know what kind of story, right, maybe not cost-benefit, whatever, you know, but, but saying in some way there must be a story to be told about it in, is in itself wrong because we don't know, right? At the very least, Camus would say we don't know if there's a good reason for it or not. And we should acknowledge that, which at least someone like Penteloo wouldn't. Um, I think that some Christians would, right? They'd be willing to say, look, yeah, we we're, we have a kind of a skepticism. So we hope there's a story to be told about it, but we don't necessarily – we are not kind of to claim that we know that there is. How could you know?
0: There's some kind of story at the end of the day. I don't know what it is. Um, and I don't think any other human knows what it is. But, but... I, I i I do have a commitment to thinking that um, there's there is a reason – why um but it wouldn't be a, hu- a human sort of reason so i'm committed to a theology at which the analogia entis is at the basis so any any the language that we use to speak about god which obviously we have to speak about god using language um if we're to have thoughts about god and um you need to have thoughts about god in order to worship god but um it's an it's it's analogical right um and 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 a and a and a healthy um, theological perspective recognizes the, the limits of human understanding and the limits of human language when thinking about God. I mean, no human concept um, can capture God. God is completely transcendent. And thank God, I'm a philosopher and not a theologian. <laughs> Honestly, it's. I don't know how anyone does it. Good theology has has humility at it at its root. If what Camus is doing is an anti-theodicy, I'm one hundred percent. I'm I'm one hundred percent with him. Um, but where I think I would personally kind of jump off the Camus train is in thinking that suffering is meaningless. I don't think that it's meaningless. I think that. Um, I think I agree with him that there's a kind of mystery there, right? Which we can barely, especially at the level of of philosophy and natural reason, like we can barely touch it. We can say some things, right? Some important and true things. I think we can say, right? But you're like you're like barely scratching that mystery. How is this a novel about virtue? You have to help me there. Yeah,
1: no, it's an interesting question. Um, I mentioned at one point, and I think this was pretty close to the beginning, that there seem to be some tensions in Camus own own thinking, which he's aware of and which he's dealing with in the novel, partly by having different characters who can express different ideas. And one of them is about whether we're optimistic or pessimistic about human nature and human beings. Um, So Ryu seems to be optimistic, at least about human beings and Taru is pessimistic, uh, which makes sense if he thinks we're all infected with the plague, morally speaking and so on. Um, when he's talking about this at one point, Tarou says... Uh, it's a passage I want to come back to because he says something else in it too. But he Tarou is talking about... Um, it's in the death penalty conversation. And Tarou says something like, uh, you have to be on your guard all the time to make sure you don't infect other people because uh, the virus is... It's not normal. What is it that he says? It's something like that, right? That the virus is sort of the status quo. That that's what's natural. Um, it's natural for us to be sick all the time. It's natural for us to be bad and to infect each other. And so it's kind of a constant struggle to be good. Whereas Rio seems to think, and he says more than once in one way or another, modestly in his way, but uh, people are generally good. They do their jobs, they help each other. Um, they go astray and it's sort of not their fault. And even when they go astray, they usually have good intentions. So at one point he says, uh, and I think he's it's, The narrator here, so it's not through in dialogue, but the narrator says, um, actually I should have that quote here. It's about ignorance, right? It's that place where he's talking about ignorance.
0: Oh yeah. he sort of, um, Teru somehow has this idea that like all vice comes from ignorance.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, no, it's real because it's the narrator that says this. Um. So he says, uh, Doubtless today, many of our fellow citizens are apt to yield to the temptation of exaggerating the services they rendered in fighting the plague and so on. But the narrator is inclined to think that by attributing over-importance to praiseworthy actions, one may by implication be paying indirect but potent homage to the worst side of human nature. For this attitude implies that such actions shine out as rare exceptions, while callousness and apathy are the general rule. The narrator does not share that view. The evil that is in the world always comes of ignorance and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. On the whole, men are more good than bad. That, however, isn't the real point. But they are more or less ignorant, and it is that which we call vice or virtue. The most incorrigible vice being that of an ignorance that fancies it knows everything and therefore claims for itself the right to kill. So we talked about that kind of before, that lack of humility again, having truth with a capital T or whatever. So I would say that modesty or humility is one of the big virtues of this book, especially when you look at someone like Ryu. And then the next sentence, I'll just read one more. The soul of the murderer is blind, and there can be no true goodness nor true love without the utmost clear-sightedness. So in a way, and there's only a couple moments in the book, I think, where it's stated that baldly. But uh, in moments like that, I really sense this kind of uh, almost like an Iris Murdoch kind of view going on in the sense of virtue for Ryu. And and Taru says something very similar, actually. They come together here is about paying attention, uh, again, facing reality, really seeing what's in front of you, Uh, not being deluded by ideology and narrative, right, and all this stuff, not being the bad communist, right, just going to say, hey, let's go kill some people, it'll all work out in the end, you know, 50 years from now, it'll be a communist utopia, it'll be great, right, buying into your ideological narrative and so on, Um, not being the people of Iran who are saying, oh, it can't be the plague, even though it clearly is, because we don't want it to be, and that kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like us and things like that, but actually... Doing that constant attention, which Taru and he brings it up, I think says it's really hard. It's really hard work, um, but to pay that kind of attention all the time and not be deluded by fantasy—I'm uh, slipping into Murdoch's terminology here, right? But you know, the fantasy of the fat. Well,
0: woman, it's me, know, so that's but, okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. I figure I'm taking my get, permission get away to go you, full, you, right?
0: it's the full, full Murdoch. Murdochian.
1: Okay, all right, awesome. No, I really think that in the end, the virtues of this book. Um, come down to that it's uh seeing clear-sightedly paying attention being humble and modest which is really related to all that stuff uh and then and and it's related to the thing about argument too about uh wariness about arguments that they can lead us astray that an argument can get us to think something and then do something which if we just sort of open our eyes and look we can see well no decent person could do that and in fact, Ryo, I think near that passage somewhere, talks about common decency. Um, they're talking about heroism, and I think Ryu says, uh, yeah, I don't see what I'm doing as heroism. I'm not interested in heroism. Uh, I'm just interested in common decency. I think that's what gets people to do the right thing 98% of the time. So I think those are, you know, they're very sort of modest virtues. And I mean, modesty is on the list, so it makes sense. But in a way, it's very, it's a very down-to-earth kind of moral view in positive terms you get, you know, at the end of the book, or or throughout the book, I should say. And then I think along with that there's various suggestions about why people do bad things. Again, an ignorance here is one of them, one of the most salient ones. And there's other ones as well, I think. But uh, there's suggestions about, you know, why people do bad things, especially if you accept Rio's optimistic view that we're basically good, then why do we ever do bad things? Why do we do them so often? Well, you know, we can speculate about why. But in terms of the positive view, I think they just come down to those very simple kind of Conscientious behavior, doing your job. I mean, it helps if your job is something good, right? Like you're a doctor. You're, you know, that's sort of an intrinsically good thing. You're making people better. But showing up for work, pushing the rock up the hill, even when it's hopeless, um, and then paying attention, trying to see things clearly, not telling lies, not being taken in by lies, being careful about narrative and ideology and all that stuff. I think that's kind of the core of the moral view that's uh, in the book.
0: So that's like, that's super helpful to me, actually, because it helps to make sense of all of the little remarks along the way about abstractions. Right. Uh, There's like all these throwaway, well, they're not throwaway, but they they don't wear their intelligibility (laughs) on their sleeve, but all of these concerns about abstractions. And of course, you know, um, there is throughout the novel also like failures to confront reality of, of a variety of, of sorts, but it also helps to bring together in my mind, um, the ways in which the odyssey and, um, Ideology and and certain um, communist ideology are, are actually similar. Yes. So even though they seem like they would be completely different, <laughs> but there's are. one there's one sense in which they're very similar. So if you think about there are many kinds of Marxism, but the, the kind of scientific historical materialism that was characteristic of Stalin's regime, um, and I and I think was to some extent embraced by Lenin. But here the idea is that. Okay, we have this commitment to historical materialism, so we know that nature—or sorry, not nature—history, right, is on a trajectory. It has a telos, and the 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 kind of um, ideology that Stalinists that Stalin is operating under is this idea that um, this is governed by scientific laws or quasi scientific laws, um, which we can discover, and like we have to we have to push it along right so like the the job of the communist state is to is to push history along to accelerate things so that we can get to our utopia and that of course involves mass murder right torture i mean so because individuals and their rights don't matter those can be sacrificed um, and again it's this idea that well, we can understand we can understand history itself and where it's going and we can help it to get to its telos um, it's there's the, the at the root of this right is the same same mistake right that that you could possibly have this figured out so that's super helpful to me yeah, no, I'm, glad. I'm glad I, I I like that. I mean, there's, there's so, there's so much else that we could talk about. We didn't get to talk about this stuff about exile. um, Which I think is, so that's something for our listeners to ponder um, (laughs) is, is what, well, there's so much for you to ponder, but especially like what he's saying about exile and, and I think exile and, and memory. I mean, there's so, there's so much about exile memory and love, but that would be like, I mean, we've been talking for like an hour and a half. What, what's your theory about the narrative structure of this? Why, why, what's the setup there? Why does he do it that way?
1: Here's a quick thought, and I'm sure there's more to it than this, but in part, at least, um, I mean, one thing to observe about the plague, and I think actually you mentioned this at one point, is it's a novel that reads very differently the second time through. And that's always interesting in its own right, but I think that – I mean, when I think about all the books and and movies and so on that I love, that's almost always true of them, that when you know everything there is to know about them and then you start from the beginning again, you experience the early parts so differently because – and I think in this case, reading the early parts of the book, knowing that it's being narrated by Ryu, who's not coming out and saying so, really make it a different experience. I think that it certainly relates to what we said about modesty being one of his main virtues that he's not a character who would want to come out and take center stage in that way he almost does it reluctantly and i think there's also in a way this idea of of objectivity or impartiality built into it in the sense that he's really doing his best to provide an accurate account i mean again one of his main virtues is paying attention and perceiving reality and i think he has this sense that telling it from his perspective which himself with himself as the main character would falsify things in a way or bias things and prevent him from simply relating the facts as they happened which is his main agenda as a person so in a way I think it tells us a lot about the character um, in that sense and I think it also leads us to ask a very interesting question which is well is that true I mean I could see Rio believing that I'm not sure myself that that's right that you're really going to get a more objective account by doing it that way Because by doing it that way, of course, certain things really get sidelined, like in particular, his relationship with his wife. I mean, the whole time he's going through this, his wife is is elsewhere and probably dying. And in fact, it turns out she was, and she dies before he can see. So they're never reunited. Emotionally speaking, this is a huge thing going on with him, barely mentioned in the the, the chronicle, as he calls it, right? Because it's, it's about him. It's not about the story of the plague itself. And so I think it makes us ask that question, which is a very interesting question, and consider the things which get sidelined in that way. And then I think Camus is also um, suggesting in that way, by thinking about that story which is sidelined, it makes us think, well, everybody has a story like that that isn't getting told. So as much as we are receiving and becoming aware of in the terms of getting this chronicle, every one of these people has all these stories that we're not hearing about as well. Um, so that, you know, and, and this gives us maybe a sense of the, the richness of the life here of this town and also the richness in a negative sense of, of the suffering that's happening.
0: That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Troy, thank you again for being, for being on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. This podcast is edited by William Dethridge, a politics and theology student at CUA. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, or on Lyceum, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then you definitely need to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And please be sure to let your friends know to check us out. That's it for this season. So until we meet again in the fall for another academic year together, stay safe out there and keep reading.